Hi all, and welcome to our H1 2022 earnings call. I'm here live from our Amsterdam office together with Ingo Uitenhagen, our CFO, and Ethan Tendowski, our head of group finance, who will later on talk you through our results and key developments from the first half of the year. For now, a short note on the Q&A function. It's already enabled and you can start sending in your questions. Please do not forget to include your name and the firm you represent when sending these in. Before we dive into a conversation with Ethan and Ingo, the team has prepared a video for you that will show how we've been back here in the office and the results and key developments from the first half of the year. I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to our H1 2022 earnings call. We're excited to share the key developments from the first half of 2022, so let's get started. The highlight of the first half of 2022 was meeting with the Adian team and our customers in person after connecting virtually for much of the last two years. The relationships we foster face-to-face -face are vital to scaling our culture and founding principles of speed, flexibility, and innovation. Coming back together and into the office created an incredible buzz throughout the company. Our team and culture remain our focus, and we were able to accelerate our hiring pace. The Adian team totaled 2,575 FTE at the end of H1 2022. On the product side, there were several exciting launches during the first half of the year. We made multiple investments in the unified commerce space to enable the most forward-thinking in-store customer journeys. We seized the opportunity to speed up innovation on the hardware side by releasing the first Adyen-designed terminals. Another launch was rolling out Tap to Pay on iPhone in collaboration with Apple, enabling businesses to accept contactless payments on an iPhone. While digital transformation was once a priority for select industries, the trend is quickly spreading. Seamless unified commerce journeys are a need to have across industries. With our advanced offering, we continue to service today's and tomorrow's most innovative brands. Another product innovation was expanding our offering for platforms by building an embedded financial product suite encompassing bank accounts, business financing, and card issuing. The opportunity in financial services is significant, and we find ourselves uniquely well-positioned to capitalize on it due to historical investments in our global licensing, product offering, and strong team. This is an end-to-end -end solution, accessible via a single integration and which leverages our own licensing framework. Within a shifting macroeconomic landscape, we saw multiple longer-term trends persist and are posting a strong set of results, underscoring the resilience of our business model. On these trends, in line with previous periods, customers already on the platform contributed over 80% of volume growth. Volume churn remained below 1%, and we saw net revenue contributions continue to diversify across industries and regions as we successfully execute our land and expand strategy. We're a more global business every cycle. Now, let's dive into the financials. In H1 2022, we processed 345.8 billion on the single platform, growing 60% year on year. Off these, point of sale volumes were 44.9 billion and up 97% year on year, making up 
13% of total processed volumes. These numbers are testament to the continued traction and increasing relevance of our unified commerce offering. Net revenue was $608.5 million, up 37% year-on-year. EBITDA was $356.3 million, up 31% year-on-year. EBITDA margin was 59% for the period. With travel restrictions lifted, travel and event costs returned as we were able to meet our customers and colleagues in person again. In addition, our commitment of 1% to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals impacted our EBITDA margin. This pledge enables us to scale our impact, technology, and social responsibility programs in line with the business's growth. We continue to build Adyen for the long term. We have a significant opportunity to capitalize on and a talented team in place. Our gaze is ahead and the time to execute is now. Yeah, I think uh, for all of us, that video just puts an instant smile on our face. It's uh, I might be slightly biased, but um, looking at that video, Ingo, for an opening comment, what would you start with when you reflect on the first half of 2022? Yeah, I think it's the whole atmosphere in the video, like being together in the office again in the first half year is really special to us. Um, the fact that we have uh, worked together uh, face to face, visiting our merchants face to face, uh, that's a, a unique thing in our company. We make sure that uh, by working together, you um, you get a lot of creativity in the team. And we have always focused on uh, being an office-first culture, and we continue to do that. So uh, that's, I think, a great achievement of the first half year. We also experienced this uh, when we uh, had our uh, company event again for the first time in three years, the whole company here in Amsterdam. Uh, seeing each other, um, speaking to each other, working together, it gave so much energy to the team. And of course, that's crucial in building a company. And that's, of course, something uh, I'm very proud of. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I think, Ethan, we can both only fully subscribe to that. But um, if you'd had to add anything else to the second, first half of this year, what would it be for you? Yeah, well, while that's certainly an interesting change that Ingo uh, mentioned, what's actually really interesting to me is that a lot of the longer-term historical trends that we've seen on the platform continued. So things like over 80% of our growth coming from our existing merchant base, less than 1% volume churn, continued diversification of our net revenues across regions, all continued even during what was a pretty dynamic macroeconomic uh, situation. So I think that's really impressive for uh, for this business and shows the resiliency. And I think you can see the resiliency in the numbers, where we grew volumes over 60 or at 60 percent, as you saw in the video. Uh, net revenues grew at at 37 percent, and we got to 608 and a half million euros. And EBITDA margins were at 59 percent, with the reference to the travel uh, that we've been able to do as a team to see each other, but also to see our customers, uh, and of course the pledge to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Um, so we're really happy and pleased with the numbers. And I think especially if you dive into those numbers, you'll also see that our point of sale volume especially was uh, significant. It, it almost doubled this year. Um, and we're seeing a lot of traction in, in many use cases. Um, and I think that's a real testament to the success of, uh, of unified commerce and how important it is to our customers. And so 
we'll continue to to focus there and i think especially on the on the hardware side we spent a lot of time getting out a new terminal set a, a terminal range developed by us and, and designed by us um, so i think that's a great development together with the tap to pay on iphone which we also launched in this half year so a lot of exciting things happening on the on the unified commerce side mm -hmm. yeah so it indeed uh, really sounds like a strong set of results and uh, true to our formula point we have been launching fast um, and i think there's even more to add on that front uh, certainly from a product perspective ingo what would you add yeah, the other focus has been on uh, building out our platform offering. Uh, over the recent years, we've uh, focused very much on helping platforms to offer payments. Of course, that started off with eBay, but also other software as service uh, providers offering payments in their mix. And we have now gone one step beyond that. Um, we strongly believe that a lot of uh, SMBs are underserved by the traditional financial institutions. And those pl platforms are often the trusted partner uh, for those SMBs. And what we can do is power them with other financial products, other financial products like capital, bank accounts, uh, but also issuing. And uh, we see this as a, an opportunity to serve the SMB market. So uh, we're in a really good place there. Uh, we've just started that. It's a, it's a long-term investment in, uh, uh, in this uh, portfolio. So it's going to take a couple of years to really see uh, the revenues. Uh, but also, if you look at the investments that we in the past years have made in unified commerce, you see that it actually is going to pay off. So we have a very similar expectation here to, uh, to platform. So that's where I'm uh, very much excited about and really pleased that we're live with a couple of pilots in this, uh, in this area. Mm -hmm. Now, I think uh, we're, uh, we're all very excited. And as the movie said too, the time to execute is now. Um, uh, and executing is what we do with a team. Before we dive into Q&A, any final notes on how we're building the team? Yeah, building the team is crucial to us. Um, we've added uh, close to 400 people in the first half of uh, this year. Uh, very pleased to, uh, to see those new people. I think we've found ways to further scale up the business. That's also something that we want to do in uh, the rest of this year. We have a huge opportunity, and it's indeed all about now executing it with the team, and I'm very, really happy to see uh, the team further growing uh, as of now. I think uh, that's the best comment to close off this uh, conversation on key developments and results for the first half of this year. Um, I see that there are already quite some questions coming in, so uh, over to Q&A. The first question that came in is from Mohamed Moala from Goldman Sachs. Mo, please go ahead and unmute yourself. Great. Thank you, Sana. Hi, Ingo. Um, hi, Ethan. Uh, I had two from my end. Uh, firstly, you talked on building the team out, and we saw the big step up in headcount. Can you help us sort of understand the pace of the investments? Are we going through a kind of significant investment cycle? And, and when would you expect sort of operating leverage to return? Because you've obviously reiterated your long-term guidance. And then secondly, how do you measure the payback uh, on, on sort of those investments? And how should we think of the kind of revenue trajectory? Uh, linked to that, I guess, are you seeing any sort of slowdown? Clearly, the numbers don't demonstrate it. But, uh, just curious to get your sense from a macro standpoint, you know, how your business is getting impacted and how you're offsetting that with sort of the share gains and some of the other structural initi initiatives. Thank you. 
Thanks for your questions, Mo. Uh, Ingo, if you could take the first two on our investments and how we're expecting those to uh, result into operating leverage over time. And then, Ethan, if you can take the macro note afterwards. Yeah, so uh, indeed, Mo, those uh, investments are for the longer term. Um, if you look at where those investments go right now, it's in building out uh, the teams. Um, most of our new staff is in, uh, is in the tech uh, on the tech side of the business, and over the past half year, 50% uh, of the new joiners were in uh, in those tech roles. But it's going to take a couple of years be before we see it back. Um, so it's more like a long-term, multiple-year uh, investment. At the same time, if you look at the um, cost increase right now, it's not just the people. It's also the fact that people travel again, meet merchants, which is very much important, and also the 1% uh, to the UN uh, pledge. So these all result in higher cost. Of course, if we would uh, slow down the hiring, and uh, we would very easily get to the 65%. So there is strong operating leverage in the business. It's not that we need a lot of operational staff to keep the business running. This is all about investing in the future. And it is a longer time horizon before you uh, see a product like uh, the embedded financial products turning into uh, significant revenues. Uh, but that's an investment that we want to make because we have also seen in the past with unified commerce that that really pays off. So that's why we strongly believe this is the right thing to do uh, at the moment. Mm. So um, to uh, recap, our long-term view remains intact. Um, moving back from the long term to today, Ethan, um, uh, the macro impact on e-commerce? Yeah, so in general, our growth comes both from the growth of our customers, of course, but also from doing more business together with our customers. And because of that mix, we haven't seen uh, an impact in our numbers in, in the first half. Um, we're very much focused on the long-term long opportunity like Ingo referenced, and we're very, very excited about that opportunity, and therefore we continue to, to hire at a, at a fast rate. Of course, on the short term, we're focused on the same things that we've been focused on in the past, which is how can we do more projects, how can we work together more with our customers and help them solve more of their pain points, more of their problems. Um, and that's what we'll continue to focus on the short term, uh, especially with the confidence we have in the long-term opportunity. That should uh, answer your questions, Mo. On to the next question from Adam Wood at Morgan Stanley. Adam, please go ahead and unmute yourself to ask your question. Hey, Sana, Ingo, Ethan. Um, thanks also for, for taking the question. Uh, I've got two, please. The first one is just digging a little bit into Europe. Um, the 30% growth there is obviously very strong, but suggests that maybe you're not taking share at quite the pace that you were in previous periods. I appreciate there's lots of differences in your business mix versus the other acquirers in terms of the mix of e-com versus point of sale. But I wonder if you could just dig in a little bit in Europe um, and talk about how much of that is you know, a weaker e-commerce market generally, whether you're seeing more competition in Europe um, and whether there is any incremental difficulty in taking share with the existing merchants because you've already got you know, a stronger market presence in that market. Um, and then secondly, just maybe digging in a little bit further on, on Mo's question um, on margins. I guess we're all trying to kind of reestablish with co with costs that you've avoided during COVID coming back in, whether this is kind of a, now a rebased level of margins that we should expect some operating leverage off, um, or whether you do see any need for kind of incremental larger investments because you're, you're, you're targeting a much broader set of products than you were when you were just focused on merchant acquiring. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. Ethan, could you uh, take Adam's first question on uh, growth in Europe? Yeah, sure. Uh, and then we'll move to Ingo afterwards for Adam's question on EBITDA margins. Yeah, sure. So 
I guess first as, as a starting point, we typically look at our customers globally because often we work with them across the world. Um, and so there are times when one region goes faster than another based on the projects we're working on with those global customers. In this case, I would say also Europe, we've been here the longest, so also we're working from the biggest base. In general, we're really happy with the growth numbers that we're seeing in Europe. We're, we're still taking market share. We're still seeing that we win from the incumbents, from the traditional players, uh, and also from the newer players. So we're really confident in, uh, in our performance in Europe as well, and we continue to hire here uh, too to support yeah. that. Yeah, and uh, from uh, an area where where we've been present for a long time to uh, also newer plans that Adam pointed out and our current investments. Uh, Ingo, could you shed a bit more light on our EBITDA margins and um, why we uh, decided to invest in the areas we did? Yeah, sure. So um, we, we still uh, see a lot of future potential, and that's where we're investing in. Um, I think it's important to highlight that EBITDA margin is still 59%. Um, so it has not uh, dropped uh, dramatically. Uh, that's also why we strongly believe that we can keep the guidance uh, uh, intact. Um, there is a lot of operating leverage in the platform. And um, for us, it's um, always been the question, like, how can we build this company for the long run? Um, if you want to make certain investments, we want to do that right now uh, and then... Uh, that has some impact on the short-term margins, but it will really lead to a bigger bigger business over time, uh, and, and that's what we're focused on. So um, that's why we've made this decision, um, and, uh, yeah, we're actually quite pleased with that we have this opportunity uh, uh, to invest. So uh, through the style, we uh, remain our uh, long-term view. Adam, I think uh, that should answer your questions too. Up next is uh, James, Goodman, James Goodman from Barclays. James, please go ahead and mute yourself to ask your question. Yes, great. Good afternoon. Thank you. A couple from me as well then, please. So um, just, just firstly, one effect that's slightly difficult to um, disentangle from the numbers is just the, the, the strong travel rebound that we've seen. Obviously, that's shown in the full stack percentage going back down. Can, can you just talk a little bit about where we are now in terms of travel as a percentage of the business, given how much the rest of the business has grown since pre-COVID, um, and, and to help us get a sense of whether we're seeing maturity maybe, um, or at least a stabilization in the full stack percentage and its effect on, on the net take? That's the first question. The second one was if you could talk a little bit more about the rationale to launching your own um, point of sale. I noticed that you're working with third-party hardware providers. So to what extent is the, the hardware you're offering fully differentiated? How does that allow you to, to compete? And, and what sort of subset of your merchants is that going to be relevant to? Thank you. Thank you, James, for your questions. Uh, Ingo, if you could take the first one on uh, travel and impact on our volumes, and Ethan, if you can then uh, afterwards speak to the rationale behind our, uh, the launch of our terminals today. Yeah, sure. Um, so if you look at um, the uh, full stack volumes, we are at 78% uh, this half uh, versus 83% uh, last year. So that's, I think, sort of a proxy for uh, the impact of, uh, of travel. Um, the travel rebound has been indeed very strong. So you see uh, that the world has opened uh, again. Uh, that also impacted uh, the take rate uh, on our platform. Uh, there is some pressure on the, on the take rate as a result of this. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it's, it's part of having this uh, type of uh, verticals on our platform. So uh, very much in line with the expectations that we had uh, when the travel indeed rebounded. So. 
Yeah, and on our, on our own terminals, we indeed don't manufacture them, but we did design them. And that was through feedback together with our customers about how they would best want to use our terminals and, and, and how we could make that journey as seamless and, and easy for them as possible. And so we took their feedback into our own design, uh, and we've worked hard to, uh, to create our own audio and design terminals, which now help, especially with use cases like mobile. So being able to have uh, a store clerk go out and meet the customer away from the, away from the, the desk, which really helps with certain customer journeys, as well as uh, an add-on to an, to an iPhone or an iPad, uh, a smartphone, um, which also makes some of those journeys easier. So it was really listening to our customers, identifying what the use cases were that we could help them solve, and then uh, yeah, taking it into our own control to design it the way we felt could best solve their problems. Thank you, clear. James, thank you for your question. Uh, it's now time for our next question. Up next is Sandeep Deshpande from JP Morgan. Sandeep, please unmute yourself and ask your question. Yeah, hi, good afternoon, and thanks for letting me on to ask a question. Uh, my first question is on the take rate. Uh, I mean, because of the return of travel and various other factors that you've mentioned, you've seen this take rate decline quite a lot in the, in the half. I mean, your uh, process volume was impressive, really, in the first half, as such, really, given the how the market behaved. So I have two questions associated with that. Uh, the first one is, I mean, given that you are exposed to a very large enterprise customer base, should we be essentially looking at in the long term that your take rate over time will essentially keep declining over time, given that these customers will keep growing and hopefully if you are successful, you will keep expanding your footprint within these customers. And then secondly, uh, regarding the take rate, uh, I mean, how should we look at uh, travel as in terms of the take rate? Because there are two aspects of travel uh, airlines, right? Which is that uh, they are not full stack for you. And then secondly, uh, it is gateway only. And, and uh, that inflation, which is occurring in the travel market may not be helping you as much. So I'm trying to understand how we look at this travel because travel probably will remain a strong growth driver for you for another year at least. Thank you for your question, Sandeep. Ingo, if you could start and uh, highlight how we continue to grow with our customers, what our strategy is in that front, and also what it does to our, to our take rates. I think Ethan then uh, can take over for uh, further take rate dynamics. Yeah, sure. So if you indeed look at um, our uh, customer base, it's, it's mostly uh, enterprise uh, merchants. And the take rate is indeed, or the declining take rate is a, um, is a result of the business model because we've always had tiered pricing. Uh, so if a merchant brings uh, more volume over time, uh, you get lower prices per transaction, so a decline in take rate. Um, and that's still uh, the case. So um, th that's a, a real driver in combination with the fact that the full stack percentage uh, has gone uh, down. So these are the drivers. Uh, it's also the reason why we don't really manage on take rate. We manage on absolute margins. Um, and indeed, if we continue to grow large enterprises uh, on uh, our platform, then there will be some pressure on take rates, which we think is a positive because then we're growing the business. And that's eventually what uh, we want to achieve. I can only agree. Ethan, the follow-up question on the more detailed take rate dynamics also around travel? Yeah. So. Travel has a, has a couple of impacts. One is the is the full stack percentage that was referenced as well. That 
uh, typically for airlines, we do just do gateway volume. Uh, so that has an impact on, on the full stack percentage, but also it's typically higher ATV, so higher average transaction values uh, um, uh, in, the, in the airline and, and travel space in general. And, and that also has an impact uh, on take rate. Um, travel is, is growing very fast in the first half year, that's clear. It's still not the same proportion as it was uh, of our business before the pandemic because many other uh, verticals have grown a lot throughout that time period as well. Um, but yeah, those are those are the impacts that the travel has on on take rate. Thank you for uh, for that question too. On to the next, Frederic Boulan from Bank of America. Fred, please go ahead and unmute yourself to ask your question. Hi, uh, good afternoon. Uh, thank you very much for taking the question. Uh, so first of all, uh, coming back on your commentary around uh, no macro impact. Just trying to, to unpack a little bit the, the slowdown in revenue growth you, you've seen in H1, a bit more than 30% on the underlying basis. So that's, a, that's about 10% slower than, than H2. Um, so if you can discuss some moving parts here, um, any seasonality uh, we should uh, look forward to in H2 uh, in retail or other verticals that could drive different dynamics in growth in, in your three uh, segments, being digital, UC, or, or platform. Um, and then secondary around your margin, uh, we discussed it a bit, um, 270 bips compression in the first half. Um, taking your commentary around your commitments, your investment uh, in people, marketing, travel, etc., cetera, uh, is it fair to assume that uh, we should be at that kind of rebase level for uh, H2 and next year uh, before we start to see some, some operating leverage coming back up just to, to try to gauge a little bit the the phasing of uh, margins. Thank you. Thanks, Fred. I think, uh, Ingo, these are uh, two questions that uh, will uh, will both fit you. The first is uh, on revenue growth, what moving parts have been there, and uh, also the uh, impact of industry mix. Um, and the second one uh, also on uh, what we're expecting uh, on our margins and um, when we how those will pay off over time. Yeah, so I think if you, uh, if you look at our revenue growth, um, it's also good to look at uh, volume. So the volume growth is uh, 60%, and the fact that uh, revenue growth is just 33% is uh, partly caused by this take rate development that we uh, just discussed. Um, I think the good thing, if you look at our revenues, that it's more and more diversifying. So we're becoming more and more a global business, uh, and the region, all regions are growing. So that, that's also a very, I think, healthy uh, development uh, in in our base. So. As a result, we're yeah, pleased with uh, those developments. Um, on the margins, um, we're, again, we're, we're focused on the long-term investments. Um, if we um, had to get to the 65% guidance, we could get there very, very quickly. Um, and that would only have impact in like multiple years before you would see it down uh, in, the, in the revenue growth. At the same time, we think that this is crucial to do right now, given the opportunity that we see. And I find it very hard to um, give like this year's guidance or uh, uh, next year guidance on EBITDA percentage because we want to invest in the business. And at the same time, of course, we don't want to overspend. I think the most important factor is um, growing the team, uh, making sure that we grow the team in a healthy way. We've always had the bar 
uh, set the bar very high, high in hiring new people. And that also avoids a situation where we would instantly overspend because we would overhire, basically. We've never done that. We won't do that. Uh, but we also won't give any uh, EBITDA guidance uh, on the short term because we think it doesn't fit our business model. We want to focus on that long term. I think uh, that comes to no surprise to anyone. Um, so that's, uh, thank you uh, for sending in your questions, Fred. It's uh, time for the next up. Josh Levin from Autonomous. Josh, please go ahead, unmute yourself, and ask your questions. Hi, good afternoon. I have two questions. It's around 78% of TPV now. Before COVID, it was closer to 72%. So do you think that we'll, full stock acquiring will go back to the 72% area? Uh, and the second question is on headcount. You added, I think, 400 new employees during the first half. Is that the pace we should expect for the next few semesters? Or where should we think the headcount ends up at the end of this year or the end of next year? Thank you. Thanks for your questions, Josh. Ethan, could you take the first one on full stack acquiring and how that's evolved? And Ingo, uh, could you speak a bit more to our hiring plans? Sure. Yeah, sure. So on full stack percentage, uh, pre-pandemic, we talked a lot about how at that time the majority of our non-full stack volume was with airlines and how we expected that airlines wouldn't grow at the same rate as all the other verticals on our platform, not only because the other verticals were growing fast, but also because we were adding verticals to our platform over time. And I think it's safe to say that we've done that over, over the years, the last couple of years, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, so I wouldn't expect that it would go back down to those levels because I wouldn't expect the proportion of airline volume to, go, to, to remain what it was uh, pre-pandemic. Thank you. Very clear. Yeah. Next question. Uh, are hiring plans for the upcoming years? I think uh, the movie might have already uh, said something, but uh, go ahead, Ingo. Yeah, so indeed we hired 400 over the first half. Um, we uh, certainly want to further expand the team um, and uh, because we, we see the opportunity. Um, at the same time, we want to keep the bar high. So it's always about finding that right balance, also the capacity to, 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 uh, to onboard new, uh, new people. Um, but if we could hire 400 people in the second half uh, of the same quality, we would certainly do so. So I think this will absolutely uh, be the, uh, the pace that we try to keep uh, if we find the right talent. And we're currently in a position that we can, so we will. As we said, the time to execute is now. Thanks, Josh. On to the next question. The next question is from Nushin Neyati at Deutsche Bank. Nushin, please go ahead and unmute yourself to ask your question. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my question. First of all, I'm surprised Peter is not with you. Hope he's fine. I have a couple. Um, first, if you can give us some idea of your exposure to discretionary demand versus non-discretionary, that would be helpful. And then I, I guess it's uh, quite the same as others, but I want to know more about the CapEx trends going forward in the, for the rest of the year and how should we think about it going into 2023? Um, do you expect to remain above your guidance or you would go back to the below 5%? And um, yeah, also if you can give us more on, on the cost projection, I know you, you talk a bit more about hiring and so on, but if you can give us a little bit of idea of how to think about margins going forward in the same range or you are actually thinking of expanding. Thank you. Thanks for your uh, questions, Nushin. Ingo, if you could start. Uh, first question is on CapEx and um, then afterwards on discretionary spend. 
Yeah, sure. Um, I think on the, on the CAPEX, we um, uh, have slightly higher CAPEX levels uh, also than our guidance uh, because we uh, saw some supply chain challenges in uh, uh, ordering a new server capacity for our data centers. That's why we have been uh, investing quite aggressively to stay ahead uh, of the curve. Uh, and I think that's for this year more one-off than uh, that this is a, a new spend uh, level. And then on the volumes, I think the uh, majority of our volumes um, are linked to um, consumers spending at our enterprise merchants. Um, and of course, uh, that's I think mostly seen as discretionary spend. Uh, so uh, that's what I can say about it. Uh. I think um, there was another question also on margins moving forward, if I'm correct. Ethan, if you would want to take that. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I think uh, Ingo touched on it, right? The, the most important factor here is, is how do we grow the team? And we see the opportunity. We feel like the long-term opportunity for us is big and that there's talent in the market that we can bring into Augen. If we continue to find that talent, we'll continue definitely to, to bring them in. Um, on the other hand, this half year, there was... Uh, the increase of travel of, of, our, of our team getting to meet with each other and with our with our customers and also the UN uh, uh, pledge I referenced uh, earlier uh, and both of those things we expect to be consistent into the uh, yeah consistent going forward unless something would change uh, in the macroeconomic ability to travel and to see each other um, so I think those things are, are still in play going forward and we'll continue to grow the team uh, as long as we find the best people and are able to keep the bar high uh, to help realize that, that long-term opportunity. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, and maybe, maybe to quickly add, like, um, also to have no confusion around this, like if we would stop hiring uh, right now, we could very quickly get to the 65% and we also would not run into operational problems because I think that's very important to, to stress. Like, we're hiring because we want to expand. We're not hiring because we need to keep running the business. So it is really on, yeah, to get to this next level uh, and the opportunity that we see. Uh, I think it's very important to yeah. uh, to stress that. Yeah, I think it's a really good point to make indeed. And uh, to your point, uh, Peter couldn't attend today due to personal circumstances, but um, he'll uh, probably uh, he's. Uh, He's uh, doing well, and um, thanks uh, for that question, too. And um, with that, on to the next question. Sebastian Stabowicz from Kepler Chevreux. Sebastian, please go ahead and unmute yourself to ask your question. Yeah, hello, everyone. Uh, just uh, two questions from my side. Have you seen any substantial discrepancies between the organic growth uh, in Q1 and Q2? And secondly, could you please quantify the impact from uh, growing inflation to your business? Uh, have you seen any specific impact on your net revenue or your profitability in the first part of the year? Thank you. Thank you for those questions, Sebastian. Ingo, uh, could you speak to our uh, organic growth with our customers? And uh, Ethan, could you speak to our uh, CapEx developments in the first half of this year? Yeah, so if you look at uh, revenue growth um, uh, over the quarters, we don't really disclose it. I think the, the development in the first half has been uh, – there have not been really cyclical uh, trends there. Uh, so I would say uh, that that's been very much in line also with earlier years. Yeah, and on the CapEx side – it is about investing and making sure that we're we're building strategic relationships with our with our suppliers so that 
we're never in a situation where we have a shortage of, of anything that we're able to scale and continue to grow the business as we believe we can without running into those more short-term related issues. So this is certainly more in efforts to make sure we get a bit ahead of uh, any supply chain disruption or anything that could come uh, and make sure that we're well prepared to grow into the coming years. Thanks a lot. I think that uh, should answer all questions on this front too. It's uh, time for the next question from Antonin Baudry at HSBC. Antonin, please go ahead and unmute yourself to ask your question. Antonin, can you unmute yourself? You hear me? Yes, we hear you now. Thank you. Ah, okay, sorry. Good afternoon, all, and thank you for taking my questions. First question is about uh, there is a huge gap between the growth of your volumes on the gross revenues, so plus 60% and plus 55% your buyer respectively, on your net revenue growth, plus 37%, implying a strong than, stronger than usual increase of financial institutional costs in H1 from 22. Uh, what explains that, and how should we consider the relation between the volume growth and net revenue growth in the, in the future? Thanks for those questions. I think, uh, Ethan, uh, they, uh, they would fit you both. The first question is, uh, uh, if I if I uh, if I recall correctly on uh, how take rate evolved during the first half uh, of the year, I think the difference between the the gross revenue growth and and the net revenue growth, and that's certainly something that I I can talk to, which is that um, in general in our gross revenue line we also have the costs that we incur from financial institutions, right? The scheme fees or the interchange costs that come through, and those we pass through to our customers. So those have very limited impact on, on our net revenue position. Uh, they're really very much driven by uh, what the schemes do, but also where the volumes come from and which geographies. So we tend to focus our attention purely on the net revenue number rather than on the gross revenue number. Clear. Thank you. I think uh, that should answer, uh, answer uh, Antonin's question. Next up, we have... Grégoire Hermann from Alpha Value. Grégoire, could you please go ahead and unmute yourself to ask your question? Hi, everyone. Can you, can you hear me correctly? Yes, we can. Thanks. Okay, great. Thank you very much for, for taking my question. Um, if we look at digital, could you give us some insight about how much of these merchants also have in-store capacity and what holds them back from actually deploying Adyen's point-of-sale solution to actually enhance the, the benefits of Adyen's product? And um, under this unstable and sort of tense environment, could you share with us whether there has been a change in tone from merchants and whether their approach or willingness to further spend money to upgrade their checking out experience has slowed or actually increased? Thank you. Thanks, Grégoire. Ingo, could you uh, take both, qu both questions? The first on uh, customers in our digital pillar also leveraging a point of sale and the second one on how we're working with our customers uh, in the current environment? Sure. Yeah, so if you look at the uh, digital merchants, there are certainly digital merchants that indeed uh, at one moment in time also start to uh, uh, add point of sale to, uh, to the mix. I think it's a very uh, logical next step, um, adding a sales channel. We've been very successful in migrating merchants or expanding merchants in our land and expand strategy. 
uh, and we continue to do so. There is there, there are quite a, a few digital merchants uh, uh, still on, in that vertical that over time could migrate to unified commerce. Um, and uh, yeah, we are of course very happy with that. There's also, by the way, uh, a lot of unified commerce merchants that have point of sale activated that could still add uh, the uh, digital part of their business. So there's still lots of room uh, to grow. Then the type of discussions that we have with our merchants also on the macroeconomic uh, uh, circumstances. Uh, so far, we have not really seen uh, a big inflation impact uh, in our business, uh, also because an important part of our pricing is at Valorum. So if the volume increases, that also impacts our net revenue. Um, and I think some other trends uh, that are seen in the industry, for instance, that uh, there is a lower growth in uh, e-commerce. That's not something that really has affected us at, uh, yet. Uh, I think that's also very visible in our in our volume growth. So, so far, so good. Uh, we have no indications uh, that it's different right now. Thank you. Gregard, that should answer your questions. Next up is uh, Chris Brander from DA Davidson. Chris, please go ahead and unmute yourself to ask your question. Okay, great. Can you hear me? Yes, we can, Chris. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking my questions, and, and congratulations on the excellent results. Um, I'd like to ask a question on the buy now, pay later phenomenon that really uh, gained a lot of traction uh, in, in the United States and elsewhere during the pandemic and has slowed a bit here. And I know you work with uh, many providers. Uh, can you just talk about how the growth on your platform has behaved and how adoption rates have maybe changed uh, after the pandemic? Yeah, sure, Chris. Thank you. Ingo, uh, buy now, pay later. Could you uh, answer Chris', Chris question? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, buy now, pay later is, of course, one of the payment methods that we offer to uh, to our merchants. Indeed, depending on uh, the region that we're active, we offer different types of uh, buy now, pay later methods, also depending on uh, the merchant uh, needs. Um, it has really taken off uh, during the pandemic. But it's always been compared to, I think, still the majority of our volume on our platform, which is card volume. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we have to see how it will eventually uh, uh, work out in, in the next couple of uh, uh, quarters. Uh, also, of course, depending on probably mo uh, macroeconomic circumstances, uh, uh, given the fact that these are typically uh, credit products. So we have to see how this uh, works out. Clear. And with that, on to the next question. Next up is Jamie Friedman from Susquehanna. Hi, Jamie. Please go ahead and unmute yourself to ask your question. Hi, Sunny. Uh, nice to see you guys. Um, I had two questions. Um, how in general should we be thinking about the, the platform Im impact on the take rate? And I know you don't manage to take rate, but it's my job to ask. So the platform impact on the take rate, that's one thing. And then uh, in terms of the financial product suite, and I like this slide 11, where you give the ecosystem of the financial product suite, it has accounts, capital, and issuing. Which of those currently is gaining the most traction? If it's too early to say, um, how in general are you going to market with the financial product suite? So the first one on platforms, the second one on financial products. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. And uh, acknowledging that it is your job to ask, um, Ethan, can you uh, answer Jamie's question on uh, how platform volumes impact our take rates? Yeah, abs absolutely. So, and, uh, 
in general, when we when we look at platform volumes, we don't see that there's a big difference in uh, a platform versus a unified commerce or a digital merchant in terms of the take rate. We typically look at it in the size of the business, right? So if the size of the business is much bigger or much smaller, that typically has much more of an impact on the pricing than uh, the pillar by itself. Of course, if we can uh, sell more services over time uh, with the embedded financial products that uh, that were referenced, that should, of course, uh, help find opportunities to, to, to generate net revenues as well. Um, but it's much more driven by the size of the business than the, than the pillar it's in. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, that's a nice segue into uh, selling more services to platforms. Ingo, if you could uh, do a recap of the functionalities of our embedded financial product suite for Jamie, then uh, I think we yeah. should have covered both of his questions. Yeah, sure. So if you look at uh, the suite, it uh, consists of uh, issuing accounts, capital, um, and payouts. Um, if you see what's live currently, it is mostly issuing and payouts. We're doing with the other uh, products uh, uh, relatively uh, small pilots at the moment. Um, so it's uh, early stage, um, and we will yeah, continue to talk about it once we have more uh, proof. Uh, the feedback on the product so far has been really positive, uh, so that's also why we uh, keep investing. Uh, we're quite convinced that this is the right investment for us. And with that, on to the next question. Next up is Alexandre Faure from BNB Paribas. Alexandre, please go ahead and unmute yourself to ask your question. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for um, letting me on. A um, couple of questions. One, just a, a follow-up on, on earlier questions on, on take rate. Um, so, so you explained uh, very clearly how the size of a customer is at the end of the day, the, the bigger driver of, uh, of take rate. was just wondering if outside of platforms you have other initiatives to chase perhaps the bottom end of the enterprise segment or the top end of the big market segment. I don't know how you want to say it, uh, but perhaps go after customers that would be um, slightly more supportive to take rate um, in the next uh, few quarters or so. Uh, and my second question is very much a clarification. Um, when it comes to the eBay contract asset, I think you say in the shareholder letter that the monetary component is now fully amortized. So how should we think of the annual depreciation charge uh, of this contract? Uh, about 20 million euros a year, does that sound uh, sort of ballpark correct? Thank you very much. Thanks for your questions, Alexander. Uh, I think, uh, Ingo, if you could, uh, on his first question, speak to our different commercial pillars and how we go to market there. And uh, Ethan, uh, we're lucky we have an expert in the room can explain you everything about the eBay contract. Yeah, so if you look at the uh, specifically uh, on any initiatives to uh, increase take rates, I would say like it's not typically how we manage the business. Um, and maybe that's a bit boring because we uh, we keep repeating that. I think for us mainly the driver is size. If the merchant uh, grows, then uh, we uh, uh, we have lower pricing per transaction and therefore a lower take rate. Um, so it is a, in, to a certain extent a a sliding scale if you get more and more uh, volume from from bigger merchants. Uh, of course, if there is an area where in the long run you could expect a bit more increase in take rate is, of course, with embedded financial products. Uh, that's where it is, but of course, that's less also linked to process volume because these are different types of products. 
but of course we, we think about how we can further grow the revenue of the business. It's key to us. Uh, we, we really want to make sure that we continue to grow the, the absolute margins uh, of the business. Thank you. And then Ethan, on the eBay contract assets, yeah. take it away. Yeah, sure. Um, I think as a good starting point, it's important to understand that every contract that we have on the platform is profitable. Um, I think it's important to start there. Uh, and then if you talk about the, the contract assets for eBay then specifically, um, there are two parts. There's the monetary component and the non-monetary component. And the monetary component indeed has been fully amortized, so that you shouldn't expect a charge there uh, going forward. Uh, on the non-monetary side, that will continue. Uh, and so you, you can just look at the non-monetary piece, which we've disclosed, and, and expect that to continue over the life of the contract, while the monetary piece is now, uh, is now fully depreciated. Thanks for that, Ethan. Alexander, that should have answered all your questions. Thank you for those. On to the next question. I see another uh, question from Frederic Boulan at Bank of America coming in. Fred, please go ahead and unmute yourself to ask that question, too. Hi. Thanks, thanks for the follow-up. Uh, I'll keep it brief. Uh, can you shed any light on, on the margin profile of uh, POS versus uh, online and specifically on the new initiative you announced today on Terminal? Uh, if you can, can comment on, on, on margin of that and maybe uh, tap to pay on iPhone as well. Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, we certainly can. Ingo, uh, could you take that question? Yeah, sure. So if you look at the margin profile um, for our payments, uh, both in-store or uh, online, typically there is not a real difference. Uh, also on the, on the terminals, we, we've never uh, focused on making huge margins on terminals because for us it's more important to get them out in the field. We also don't want to, make, to have it as a loss-making business, so we always try to uh, sell it with a, with a minor profit. Um, so the introduction of our own terminals is certainly not to increase profits on the terminal hardware side. It's more on the innovation side and making sure that we also, by having full control, that we could drive down the cost of the terminal. So offer it at a more competitive price uh, to uh, our merchants, but also to, uh, to uh, the platforms. So that's, I think, the strategy behind this. Um, for payments, it's, uh, again, uh, mostly volume-driven, and we don't see a big difference between in-store and online. Thank you. Thanks for that additional question, Fred. On to the next question. This is Tommy Q from Berenberg. Tommy, please go ahead and unmute yourself and ask your question. Thank you for taking my question. Um, so I'm one of the long-term one, because of your expenses are continuing to go up, and probably that will still continue to go up in the future, given you are the only one probably didn't spend, um, didn't stop hiring. So for the cost of getting additional business or getting additional merchant, is that going to be more expensive going forward? And also there is another um, long-term question I would like to ask after this. Okay, great. Then uh, we'll dive into the first question and we'll uh, wait for the for your second one. Um, Ethan, could you take uh, the first question um, on uh, on cost and how that over time uh, will also uh, translate to uh, to new customers? Yeah. So uh, I think I think it's an interesting question because 
it is true that if we would just focus on the markets that we're in now and the customer groups that we go after now, uh, of course, uh, that we, we could already get to a lot of operating leverage, right? That, that's what Ingo referenced earlier, and I think, I think that is really an important point. But what we're saying is that we really want to invest in these new areas, right? We're starting to see a lot of traction in the platform space, and their needs are wider than just payments. It's a great starting point, but but they need more than that, and that's a, that's an area where we'll invest. Of course, that investment you won't see straight away. Uh, so if we wouldn't do it, um, you would you would get to faster uh, uh, operating leverage. But because we are, there will be uh, a period of time where it truly is an investment before it really kicks into net revenues. So yes, it's fair to say that. Um, it will be. It will cost more to get to new customers if we choose to go after uh, new opportunities, like we are here. If we would stop and, and stagnate and just go after the, the opportunities that we're currently or that we were previously going after, then yes, you could get there more quickly. But absolutely, we think the long-term opportunity also in these newer areas are worth investing in, and we're going to do that. Thanks, Tommy. That should answer your first question. If you're still unmuted, please feel free to also ask your second surprise question. Okay, hi. Hello. Yes, hi. Do you hear me? Yes, we do. Okay, amazing. Thank you. And this question is about what is your strategy for emerging markets? Because we start to see a lot of emerging market payment processors. Um, some of them are listed in the U.S. and has been making significant progress in getting traction with the international merchants in that region. Because I think, you know, your long-term proposition would be to be the global omni-channel service provider. And I would say that's probably one of the areas you need to cover in the future. What's your strategy done there? Are you going to do it organically? Or at some point you think it makes sense to do it inorganically? Thanks uh, for your question, Tommy. Before we dive into an answer, I would like to uh, remind the audience that a raised hand in the Q&A function does not work. So it's great if you can send in your questions via the chat, including the name and the firm you represent. Else it will be diff very difficult for us to answer them. But uh, we would be happy to. So please do it that way. Um, Ethan, our strategy in emerging markets, could you uh, answer that, Tommy's second question too? Yeah, sure. I think the big value we bring is, is that we offer this global uh, unified commerce uh, platform, which is really truly a single platform, right? It's built uh, whether you're doing a point of sale transaction in Brazil or an online transaction here in the Netherlands, it all runs over the same platform. And I think that's a really core part of the offering that we have to our customers. So I think it's unlikely that we would take an inorganic strategy to do that. Um, of course, there are uh, countries that we want to expand to, and that's been a big part of our story as well. For us, it's about making sure that we stay focused and uh, to do everything at once uh, doesn't feel like the right strategy. So it's continuing to, to focus on what's next for us, what can really move the needle for our customers. And that will be new countries at times, and that will be going deeper in certain areas like financial products now with our platform customers now. So it, it depends from time to time, but we definitely will continue to expand regionally, and the focus would be organically rather than inorganically. Thanks, Ethan. And um, after that household uh, memo, I see that we have a few more questions coming in. It's great to see that after a long time from home and working from Zoom, we can still uh, learn every now and then. Thank you. Another question from uh, Sandeep. Sandeep, please go ahead and unmute yourself. Yeah, hi. Thanks for letting me on again. Quickly now, I mean, given your much higher up, uh, expenses because of the new initiatives, 
could we have a little conversation from you on uh, comments on the new initiatives, particularly, you know, issuing was your first new initiative. When do you expect to see significant revenues from that? I mean, I remember at the time of your IPO, uh, POS was already a, a revenue stream that you were reporting out separately. Now we can see how successful that revenue stream has become for Adyen. When do we expect to see some of these new initiatives reported as separate revenue streams in the sense that have they got any of these gone beyond the initial uh, two or three customers that you started testing them with? Thank you, Sandeep. Ingo, if you could answer uh, Sandeep's question on issuing. Yeah, sure. So uh, we absolutely have added uh, new customers uh, to the initial line. So in the first half of uh, 2022, we onboarded uh, new ones to issuing. Um, it has not the size uh, of uh, point of sale at the moment and also not uh, when we uh, when we list it uh, so it's still relatively small and of course we want to give transparency uh, once it becomes a bit meaningful uh, we're of course very proud to show it uh, but it's unfortunately too early but we uh, I think the most positive thing is that we have a lot of uh, good feedback from our merchants there they appreciate the product they find it uh, working really well um, so it's more a matter of time than anything else. Thank you. Next up is Sanjay Sakrani from KBW. Sanjay, please go ahead and mute yourself to ask your question. Thank you. Um, I think, Ingo, you mentioned there were no cyclical impacts apparent in the first half, but I'm curious if the slowdown in e-commerce had an impact. And as we think about... Um, a potential slowdown in the macroeconomic environment. Maybe you could just talk about your investment uh, philosophy. Would you continue along this path or would you would you decelerate them? And I guess second question, maybe a follow-up to Sandeep's question. Maybe we won't get specific disclosures, but how should we measure the um, success or lack thereof of the investments you're making right now? Thanks. Thanks for those uh, questions, uh, Sanjay. Ingo, they were uh, already directed at you, so uh, my job is uh, already done. Could you please take them? Yeah, sure. So if you look at uh, the uh, first half, um, we uh, see indeed in our numbers no slowdown in e-commerce, also because we have always had this land and expand strategy with our existing merchants. So that's, uh, uh, I think, quite visible with the current volume growth uh, that, that there is no slowdown. If you look at the investments, um, whether that uh, accelerates or decelerates, I think we'll, what we have seen in the first half, slightly higher investment level uh, in our uh, data centers, uh, that's something that we see as more of a one-off. Maybe the second half still a bit visible, but certainly not going into uh, the next year. Uh, we've been a bit opportunistic because we thought we never want to run into uh, capacity issues, uh, but it's not that we are structurally under-invested in this area. And then, um, yeah, on the question indeed, like how do we measure success uh, on the new investments? I think that's a really fair question. Of course, we want to make sure that we track those, uh, that we track the progress, but it's really fair to say that these are long-term investments. So don't expect like um, a lot of revenues from the new embedded financial products in the next two or three years. It's really a long-term play. Of course, we want to update you also qualitatively uh, how we're progressing. We want to be transparent uh, because also for ourselves, it's very important uh, that we know that we work on the right projects. Uh, uh, so I think what we probably want to do is 
uh, also by showing relevant use cases, uh, how we're successful in, uh, in, with the different products, and then build from there. Thank you. I think it was a, a very clear answer to Sanjay's questions. Next up, we have... I'm waiting for my iPad to let me know who we have up Hi. next. I think we have a final question from uh, Justin from Credit Suisse coming in. Um, he uh, doesn't have access to the Q&A function, but we will, uh, we will unmute, you, unmute you now. Justin, you can now unmute yourself to ask your question. Can you hear me? Yes, Justin, we can. Thank you. Apologies for the technical difficulties. Uh, what was the question on Ajin for platform? Uh, thank you. I think I must be on a little bit of a lag. Um, so I have a question on Ajin for platform. So given most of the volumes are eBay at this point, uh, can you kind of give us an idea of, of that remaining set of volumes, where you're focusing going forward, what the go-to-market is there, uh, in, in two different facets, really, like on a geographical basis, uh, you know, given that we believe the SaaS market is quite fragmented in Europe compared to uh, the U.S. and elsewhere, um, as well as on a functional basis, meaning, you know, is that vertical SaaS platforms, is that marketplaces, is that horizontal SaaS platforms? Um, and also, I, I think it was Ethan that mentioned kind of longer-term outlook for the embedded financial services opportunity. You know, when we say longer-term, do we mean 2025, 24? Maybe we could put some, some rough directional around that. Um, and also, I just wanted to ask about the FX impact uh, and wanted to understand how that was calculated. So I think there would have been a decent-sized benefit from the U.S. dollar um, you know, if we if we compare those numbers on a magnitude basis in, in kind of 2H21 versus 1H22, though, it, it seemed like it would be significantly more meaningful of a tailwind in, in 1H22 all is equal. Is there any hedging uh, or can you help us kind of bridge the gap to get to the difference uh, between kind of the, the two periods in FX? Thank you very much, guys. Thank you uh, for your questions. I'm uh, going to do the, do, uh, the best I can uh, to uh, recap them because uh, we, I typically have a reminder here in my iPad. Um, I think um, the first one was on, uh, on platforms, how we're evolving there across which segments. Ingo, could you speak to that one? Um, and a second question on FX Impact too. Ethan, could you take that? If I'm missing anything, Justin, please do feel free to unmute yourself once more and we'll make sure that we cover all your questions. Um, so, yeah, if you look at the Agent for Platform strategy, uh, we uh, have priority in Europe and the U.S. Uh, that's also where our uh, embedded financial products are mostly uh, offered. There's also, of course, a licensee uh, question. Uh, pretty unique on our offering is unified commerce proposition. Um, there are not a lot of players that can actually offer this in a way we do. Uh, and therefore, uh, we uh, see a lot of traction in this area. Um, but it, uh, if it's specifically on the embedded financial product, it's going to take years. Like it's not uh, basically the question is like what is long term? Um, I would say long term is multiple years away um, because it is not something like that you can build overnight. Uh, it's, I think, very similar to the investments that we have made in unified commerce. Um, I think there, if there are two things that we can learn from a unified commerce implementation is that we could tell relatively early whether we would have success or not, so based on feedback from merchants, but also that then to really get to volumes, it takes years. Um, so that first point is also how we want to evaluate 
embedded financial products, like does it has the right traction, have the right traction with our merchants? And then secondly, we need to have that patience game again of building it out. Uh, and that's why we're so yeah, focused on that long term. And on the on the FX side, uh, it is true that USD was the uh, was the biggest tailwind that we saw on, on a constant currency basis this half year. Uh, of course, providing the constant currency uh, amount is based on what we build to our customers. They have the control over over what currency that's built in, and of course, the costs we get in. And and compared to prior periods, we had less of a mismatch between our revenues and our costs this half year than in in past periods. Thank you, Ethan. Uh, th thank. Go ahead, Justin. Did we cover everything that we had to for you? No, no, that's super helpful. So is that fair to say you could have, say, flows coming in geographically from Europe, for instance, but then being billed out in, in U.S. dollars or something of that, or, or the vice versa, which would make that impact different than kind of what the, the net revenue mix is? Um, and it sounds like that's a yes. Yeah, that's possible, definitely. Our, our merchants have control over the, the currency that we bill them in. Um, and it's not to say that in any, any given period it should fluctuate a lot. Um, it is really driven by those larger currencies on the platform like, like U.S. dollar. Um, but, th but they do have that flexibility. Lovely. Thank you very much. Thank you, Justin, for your questions. That was the last question for today. There are still a few more questions we have in the queue. We will answer those uh, via our IR inbox. The answers will come your way very quickly. Thank you all for dialing in. Thank you for sending in your questions. It was great having you and talking you through the results and key developments of the first half of the year, where we were together in our office again with the team and presenting you a strong set of results. Thank you, and we hope to see you in February. Bye-bye. <laughs>